Good morning. Feels good to say good morning and, and be right. Um, we are, we're, we're certainly, uh, Nathan said it, I'll say a little more, but we're certainly thankful as pastors and our wives to have had the week of refreshment that we've had. If you have your 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, if you'll turn to 2 Timothy 4, we'll look at verses 9 through 18. I want to read those give you kind of the aim, where we're going, and then pray again for the preaching of God's word. Grace Church, hear the word of the Lord. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will pay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. And will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In light of that text, I, I want to give us a, an aim this morning. This is, this is where we're headed. This is a, a summation of the text. God has called us to hope in the Lord who rescues and defends us in the face of harmful opposition as we make every effort to faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ for all to hear. I'll repeat it one time. You don't have to write all that down, but just listen. God has called us to hope in the Lord who rescues and defends us in the face of harmful opposition as we make every effort to faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ for all to hear. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word today. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray this morning that your gospel would not come in word only, but also with the Holy Spirit Father, with full conviction and with power. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Rick already prayed earlier today, Rick Couples, that this would not just be another sermon. Certainly it is to our benefit to come Sunday after Sunday to 
gather together to sit under the preach word. But what I believe Rick meant by that prayer is that our hearts would not just receive words and that be it, but that we would receive them under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and that we would respond appropriately. That's certainly my hope in standing here today. And this is a sermon just like we would receive any Sunday where one of us as pastors stands behind this little pulpit and to the best of our ability, we attempt to preach faithfully what God's word says. Well, as Matt mentioned a few weeks ago, this letter that we're preaching from, 2 Timothy, is written from one pastor to another. So in a sense, we're preaching sermons to an entire congregation from a text that was intended for pastors. So I say unabashedly that I am preaching primarily to my fellow elders this morning. As Paul writes to young Timothy, the aim and application of these words are primarily intended for us. So we ought to listen carefully. Paul's words are sobering, yet not without hope. Paul's words to Timothy, this young pastor, they're, they're laced with warning and promise. But saints, saints of Grace Church, don't tune me out. I believe there is a tremendous amount of content in today's text that would serve you well to hear. Your pastors need care, support, and much prayer in the face of the realities of ministry. This past week, as Nathan mentioned, four elders and their wives were able to spend a few days with like-minded brothers and sisters from our church network, the TCT network. Perhaps you've heard those letters time and time again, TCT, TCT, and you're not entirely sure what that really means. I don't just mean what those letters represent, treasuring Christ together. We certainly all could get behind those three words, but what is this network? A family of churches who not only share the exact same elder affirmation of faith, but also share a vision for church health, a desire to see new churches planted or revitalized and share a common mission globally to see the good news of Jesus Christ go to the ends of the earth. But as Nathan mentioned, far and away, the single biggest unifying agent among these pastors and churches is their love for Christ. Oh, I'm jealous for you to know these other brothers and sisters. Christ is our supreme treasure. We treasure him together. And it's plain to see among this family of churches that that's exactly what's happening. TCT is a relatively small family of churches in the grand scheme of things. And the majority of the world doesn't even know that we exist. But the Christ that we treasure and preach is continuing to make his name great among and through these churches. So while the talk of treasuring Christ together this morning, one reason is because it has served, 
in our 17 years of existence as a church as life-giving encouragement to your pastors and to their wives. We are both, as Nathan mentioned, refreshed by the gospel partnerships and pointed again and again to Christ as our only hope. I do believe that this is one of the ways that God sustains, equips, and energizes us as pastors to do the work that we've been called to do. I'll give you an example this week. You can imagine how encouraging this was. While we were at the retreat, Angie had the opportunity to sit on a panel uh, with other ladies until all the wives got together. And in the midst of the panel asking questions, my wife was able to proclaim to all these other pastor's wives that her husband is a dud. True, she said, she said it, there, there's witnesses there. That's what came out of her mouth. Her husband is a dud. I'll let you ask her about that later. Uh, there, was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of good banter, as Nathan mentioned, of joy and time to be able to spend with these brothers and sisters. Listen, we were greatly encouraged. We were greatly encouraged, but let me tell you something. The main reason that I mentioned TCT and all the tremendous encouraging things that happen is I want you to know that this week and those men and women, godly men, greatly encouraging, are not the most encouraging thing that your pastors experience. Our primary source of encouragement is you, the members of this church. We are greatly encouraged by your faith. We are energized by your love for Christ. We are filled with joy when we watch you pursue Christ. We love that. Your faithful partnership in glorifying God by treasuring Jesus Christ and spreading his eternal joy. Our whole world is wrapped up in that reality. We long to see the gospel work of God be accomplished through Grace Church in the city of Memphis and to the ends of the earth. And I believe that today's text paints a realistic picture of the life and work of ministry within a local church from the view of a pastor. I think we get to see how pastors see things transpire. I believe today's text gives us a couple of pairs that we can kind of put hooks on today. The first pair is this, the reality of our ministry relationships and the aim of our ministry efforts. So ministry relationships and ministry efforts. I think we'll find that in today's text. And then the other pair that goes together are these promises from God that he will both defend and rescue. Two more hooks. In the midst of fluctuating ministry partnerships, steadfast gospel proclamation endures. Despite tumultuous ministry opposition, God promises to rescue and defend us. So let's look together at today's text. 2 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 9. It begins like this. Make every effort to come to me soon, Paul writes. He begins his final exhortation to Timothy with a phrase that he'll repeat just a few verses later in verse 21 of this same chapter that we won't touch today. 
placing an emphasis on this task that he's given. Some urgency, make every effort to come to me, Paul says. In short, Paul doesn't believe he'll be around much longer. That's the reality. And so he's eager for Timothy to come to him. Now, I'm not sure the time that would pass from the time that Paul writes this letter to its actual delivery. This is not a text message or an email, right? Not to mention the necessary time for preparation and travel of Timothy to Paul, but one could easily surmise that it's not like modern times. It may have been a few months in the making. But Paul's appeal was this, make every effort. Timothy, it's urgent. I'm desperate for you to get here. Do whatever it takes to get to me as quickly as possible. There's a real longing on Paul's behalf to see Timothy to receive the books, the parchments, scripture, and to be encouraged down the final stretch of his life. But why this language, this sense of urgency on Paul's part when we look at all of his other writings and he's so calm and content? What's transpiring in Paul's life that would produce this kind of urgent writing? Paul, who writes in Philippians, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering need. Paul was content. He says again in 2 Corinthians, regarding that thorn in his flesh, this is Paul's demeanor. God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So listen to Paul's response to that reality. He says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul lived a life of contentment. His life is marked with contentment. And yet we know of all the tumultuous things. I don't know if you had opportunity, but I mentioned the possibility of reading Acts 23 through 28. If you had time, you saw the tumultuousness of Paul's life. It was hectic. It was hard. There were a lot of difficulties. And yet in this moment, there seems to be this urgent, he's a bit rattled and it has everything to do with relationships in ministry. So let's look at some of the details of ministry relationships that I think we find in today's text. We'll begin with the positive reality of healthy partnerships. Praise God for healthy partnerships. Nathan prayed for some of those this morning and what an encouragement they are. It says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Verse 10, the first half of this is obviously not a healthy one, but you'll see in the second half of verse 10, some of those healthy relationships. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens, a partner in ministry, has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. 
pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for, thank you. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. I want you to see the reality of healthy partnerships and what they consist of. He says in verse 11, only Luke is with me. I love God's word because there's no accidental words in there. When it says Luke is with me, there's a lot of weight to that. Luke was with him. The ministry of presence is invaluable among the ministry of the saints. Partnerships are enhanced and strengthened simply by being with one another. That's why scripture says in Hebrews 10, don't forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the reason that it's so important that you don't forsake the assembling of the saints Yes, you'll sit under the preached word, but the text tells us that you serve as an encouragement to the other saints by your presence. It doesn't spell out the activity of the assembly in Hebrews 10, but it does tell us that being together is an encouragement to one another. Paul is blessed by Luke's presence, and he's clearly hungry for Timothy's presence. Grace Church. Your pastors are greatly encouraged by your willingness to stick it out in the ministry of this church. Your presence is sweet to us. I see faces that have been with us for 17 years. We are greatly encouraged. We love you. Man, you are a blessing to our soul. And there's some that have only been with us for a short time. Listen to me. Your presence is sweet to us you're with us and that means so much it means so much the second thing that I want you to see is not just the ministry of presence but the reality of healthy partnerships are we're useful to one another he says pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service I love how Paul is constantly involving others in ministry other brothers and sisters are constantly being charged with tasks or brought along to participate in ministry. Back in Philippians chapter one, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Why? In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. There's something about this participation in ministry that is encouraging to the brothers and let's not forget back in Acts 15 when Paul and Barnabas split ways one of the primary reasons was because of their sharp disagreement regarding Mark and his usefulness in ministry what exactly was the usefulness of Mark we're not made aware but we can rest assured that Paul finds him in this moment useful saints be ready to be useful I think about the deacons of Grace Church when I think about brothers and sisters who are simply willing to be useful to the church. So many behind the scenes responsibilities that never even get mentioned or very rarely get mentioned. So many happened today so that we could gather 
without disturbance for today's sermon. Some of the most selfless partnerships in ministry are deacons who labor behind the scenes without an ounce of praise. Healthy partnerships also involve sending. It says in verse 12, but Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. One of the real joys and encouragements in ministry is to send those who dear, you dearly love, who dearly love the Lord, to another place of ministry. Saints who are willing to go demonstrate a kingdom-mindedness that should foster passion for the spread of the gospel to others in the church. So yes, they're going, but they leave behind a wake of encouragement. I want to make clear that there's a distinct difference between being sent and choosing to go. Though those two ideas can be one and the same sometimes when it's wrought by God. Some have left Grace Church for unhealthy reasons over the years. Others have left Grace Church for reasons that, quite honestly, it's hard to discern whether their motives were good or not. But there are also those who have moved from Grace Church for the right reasons and in God-honoring and church-encouraging ways. Those who have left Grace Church well have invited the elders into the process in the beginning stages of the consideration to transition elsewhere. And these same saints have stood before the church on their final day to give thankfulness to the church for the care and sanctification that they've received over the years of their membership. And it always involves tears, which with much sadness, these individuals and families are able to move again, leaving a wake of encouragement behind. I'll address later in the sermon what unhealthy exits due to the life of a church. In the same way that ministry, the ministry of presence and this behind the scenes usefulness, the ministry of being committed to stay at Grace Church, how beneficial that is, so too is the willingness to be sent in a manner that is drenched with grace-filled kingdom-mindedness. If you were present for Grow just a few weeks ago when we interviewed Derek and Tara you would have seen the perfect example of this very thing. They didn't go, they're being sent. This church is 100% behind them. You heard the testimony of their submission to the wisdom of the elders and how that has now caused them to flourish. They're being sent. They're not leaving, they're not going, they're being sent. The fourth really aspect of the reality of healthy partnerships is this. They're practical and spiritual. They're not one or the other, they're both. Timothy says in, excuse me, Paul says to Timothy in verse 13 of this chapter, when you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Positive relationships and ministry partnerships are life-giving. We're encouraged by one another, yes. But there's this usefulness that he mentions earlier. It's practical. Healthy ministry partnerships always accomplish two things. They meet practical needs and they meet spiritual needs. That's what ministry should look like. And though I'm positive that the cloak that Timothy's bringing to Paul was probably his favorite coat. It was probably gonna keep him warm during the winter. But what he's really after is those books, the parchments, scripture 
It was of greater value to Paul. There was this spiritual benefit to Timothy's coming, not to mention the encouragement that he would receive by his presence. It was practical and spiritual. That's what healthy ministry relationships look like. But I want you to see in the text, there's also examples of the opposite of that. The reality of selfish agendas, these negative relationships. And I want you to see what they consist of. How you know, am I being a positive in the ministry of life of this church or a negative? It says this in verse 10 again. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Notice the contrast of Demas' love of this present age as opposed to those who love the appearing of Christ earlier in the chapter. If we go back to verse 8, it says, In the future there is laid up for me, this is Paul speaking, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. So often in the New Testament when you hear the words that day, he's talking about the day of judgment, the day of Christ's return. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Their minds were set on different things. We would do well to notice the contrast of the error, the E-R-A, the era, that these two have their minds set on. One group, those who love the appearing of Christ, have their hope on a reward laid up for them in the future, in heaven, whereas Demas has his mind set on this present age and this world John warns against the love of the world in first John chapter 2 you, you probably know these verses well do not love the world nor the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the father but is from the world the world is passing away and also its lust but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Dear saints, pastors, these warnings are not situated in scripture because they're not a threat to us. They're situated there precisely because they are a threat to us. We're not above or beyond falling in love with the world from the position that we currently sit. I don't care how long you've been in Christ. I don't care how faithful a testimony you might have in this moment. The world still has the ability to appeal to you and to draw you away. None of us are immune from that temptation. Perhaps there are those who are present who have never committed to Christ or his church because something of this world has held their gaze. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you know you're sitting here right now and you just haven't committed your life to Christ because there's something about the world that you just can't let go of. Maybe you've followed Christ for a season, but you're presently feeling weary and tired and the effort hasn't produced the life or joy that you imagined that it would. Perhaps you're a seasoned saint whose eye has left the prize and there's an enticing sin or something of the world that you're considering pursuing. Please heed Paul's warning to Timothy and his young church. Do not let the charm of the world deceive you. Don't be hypnotized by her empty pleasures and find yourself in the clutches of her jaws. God's kingdom is not of this world. The second thing that I want you to see, not only is a love for the world, but listen, those who 
do damage to the life of the church, have these selfish agendas, these negative ministry relationships, they abandon the saints. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. He left Paul. He abandoned him. People we love and have invested in will abandon us along the way. Listen, it's the hardest part of ministry that I've ever experienced. I've been through some deep and sorrowful things. But people that you dearly love, that you've invested in, that you have seen step by step along the way, just walk away. They abandon you. These fractured relationships hurt so much. Often these are people dear to us, even blood family sometimes or lifelong friends. My goal in preaching today is not to lob you did me wrong grenades at the people who may have wounded you along the way, but to speak to you, beloved church, on the expectation and reality of these wounds. They will happen. You will be abandoned by people you love along the way. And it's all right if it's personal to you. It's okay if it feels personal to you. Your love for these individuals who might have wounded you is personal. So the hurt is personal. Paul doesn't say Demas abandoned the faith, though I think he does because of his love for the world and what John says about people who love the world. But look at Paul's words. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. That's what Paul says. It's a wound to him, the person. Now, again, it's likely that part of Paul's pain is that Demas abandoned the faith because of his love for the world. But I want you to see that the pain can be personal. The pain of ministry relationships in which you might be abandoned. But as Paul will instruct us in just a few verses later, we must lean into the Lord so that our wounds are not counted against them. Those who have wounded us, don't hold it against them. He says, we'll get to this verse more later, but he says, at my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me, like Demas, right? May it not be counted against them. That has to be our posture. Paul's laying out for us an example of that. If the Lord forgives those who deserted him in times of need, we too must seek the strength of the Lord to humble ourselves and not become bitter toward others who have wounded us. God's call is merciful. I want to draw out the pain caused by abandonment in ministry, an unhealthy exit from a church always accompanied by a handful of what I believe our immature behavior. So should we be wounded? Yes, we're going to receive those wounds and God has commanded us as believers how we ought to respond to that. But I also wanna point out the other side of that coin that when you just abandon, when you just leave with no word to the brothers and sisters that you've gathered with for years, you're doing damage. You're demonstrating spiritual immaturity at best, perhaps like Demas, abandoning the faith altogether. Abandoning ministry partners leaves the saints behind with wounds rather than encouragement. Those who leave this way demonstrate a lack of maturity. Mature saints encourage, not wound. Immature exits don't have a glad-hearted sending like we're tasting with the McClarty's and the Nashes. 
They have an unbiblical reasoning or motive for leaving. And so the saints left behind are wounded. Often these individuals or families attempt to bring along others with them. Not only are they exiting without a word, but they're trying to drag others with them. Timothy talks about that. I mean, Paul talks about that earlier in his letter to Timothy. There's a clear sign of immaturity in their exit. This damaging kind of exit is one where there is no explanation at all. These individuals simply stop coming to church. They provide no explanation and they leave with disgruntled comments to other saints in the church. You know, you've experienced it. We have it, Grace. And again, we didn't come to lob grenades at any person, but to say this happens. And so two appeals are being made. Be sure that if this happens, you respond rightly. You don't count it against them. But the other is a warning. Don't leave this way. Don't leave this way. Paul had experienced these wounds often. And so will you if you remain in the life of this church. It does others harm. It says in verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. People who are motivated by their own selfish agendas will not only create havoc and wound others in their exit, but they will also do harm to the church and her pastors. Sometimes this harm is intentional. Sometimes it's unintentional. But either way, harm is done. I'm not saying that everybody who has ever left this church did us harm. We've already established that there's good sendings that happen all the time in the life of the church. And it's not the right of those who have wounded to repay them according to their deeds, but to give these matters over to the Lord. We ought to be wise to address these individuals causing harm. It's a call that we have as pastors. Paul certainly commands Timothy to do just that throughout these two letters that he's written. But we are not to seek how we might exact revenge on them. The Lord will repay if harm is being done. But I want you to see the fourth thing, not just that harm is done, but also there's a, an opposition to gospel teaching. He says in verse 15, be on the guard against him yourself for he vigorously opposed our teaching. The primary way that these selfish agendas appear in the life of a church is through those who would seek to teach strange doctrines that the elders themselves are obviously not promoting. If your elders are not heralding from this pulpit on Sunday, something that you hear from a member on a regular basis, something they're promoting in the life of the church, you should do two things immediately. Tell that individual to approach the elders with this doctrine for help and approach the elders yourself about this doctrine for wisdom. Even if it is an issue that you might be sympathetic toward, seek wisdom from God's word and your elders. Often issues are found in the Bible that can be secondary to the gospel and the promotion of those issues can be a distraction to the primary purpose of ministry that Paul spells out time and time again as he writes letters. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Preach that. Preach what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. What about tomorrow? Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's a lot of secondary issues that, listen, I'm not saying they don't matter, but they're not primary and if all you can do is promote secondary issues, you've got a gospel problem. 
I can promise you that the elders of Grace Church, though far from perfect, will always collectively seek the Lord's face and remain steadfast on one thing, glorifying God by treasuring Jesus Christ and spreading his eternal joy. That's our calling. Paul says to this church, be on guard against him yourself for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Be warned, it will happen again in the life of this church where somebody that we believe to be in Christ is going to start promoting something as more important than the gospel. It'll happen. It happened time and time again in these letters as Paul writes. It's going to happen. God forbid, but it's going to happen. And we ought to be on our guard. We ought to respond rightly. Well, I hit you with healthy relationships, healthy partnerships, and then these selfish agendas, but I want you to see the main part of the text, which follows. We really get to drill down into where Paul's headed. Not only are there the reality of ministry relationships, but here's what the Lord says. The Lord defends us. The text has already told us that the Lord will repay. But the teaching of 2 Timothy 4 goes further. He says about himself in this moment of turmoil, verse 16, at my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. And then verse 17, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. I want you to see what the Lord's defense of us looks like. He says at the beginning, no person on earth supported him. What the text does not say is that the Lord had not abandoned him. It's implied, right? We see it. No person supported Paul, but guess who never stopped supporting Paul? God. God was with him. God never left Paul. He didn't abandon him. He didn't desert him. And so in this moment when Paul surveys the room, there's nobody there, but the Lord is. The Lord was with Paul. And he had been with him in every ministry conflict that he had experienced in his life. Again, if you had an opportunity to read Acts 23 through 28, as I suggested on the church center post, you would have seen years of God's faithfulness to defend Paul, to protect Paul, to take care of Paul. The Lord supports you, verse 16. Verse 17, he stands with you. Can you imagine this image? You're out of nowhere, surprisingly arrested. Thrown into the cell for the evening and in the early morning, you're, you're drug out of this prison cell. You've been falsely accused of crimes that you weren't guilty of. And you're drug into this courtroom and the judge is standing at the front of the room there and there's a host of people in the galley just watching the proceedings take place. And the judge reads off the accusations of crimes and promptly asks, does anyone have anything to say regarding the accusations levied against this person? You, you stand accused. You stand alone in a silent courtroom and you scan the room looking for anyone to stand in your defense and speak, to, to speak the truth. And as you scan the room in a 360 spin, you see the top of one head after another. No one standing, no one even willing to make eye contact. But at the end of your scan, 
there's one. There's one person standing with tender eyes, with scars of giant thorns on his head, hands with the marking of nail piercings. He's right there defending you, always and without fail. If the whole room sits, there's one standing with you, always. And his name is Jesus. He is our defender. Psalm 3.3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. We have one. We have a defender. We have one who stands with us. And we have a Lord who strengthens us. Look at verse 17 again. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Whom I have... Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. God's nearness is our good and the supply of our strength. And though the wounds of ministry may be painful and even long lasting, God's goodness to us abounds. He is faithful, he is near, he is with us and he is our strength. Oh saints, rest in these realities. But listen, the text takes it further. Yes, God defends, he supports, he stands, he strengthens, but he does all that for a purpose. Look with me at the end of verse 17. So that, he does all of that, he defends us so that through me, Paul says, the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. We proclaim. We proclaim. We have a purpose. God has not defended us without a purpose. He sustains us. He lets us hang around. He keeps us in ministry. We stay united with the church because God has a purpose. And his purpose is that we would proclaim. That we would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ without wavering. He says, so that through me, the proclamation might be fully accomplished. Our ministry is not our self-made agenda, but the eternal purpose of Christ's coming. The proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to proclaim this message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus crucified and resurrected. It's our only task. That's what we've been called to. Yes, we mentioned earlier, there's these practical needs that come along with preaching the gospel. The spiritual and the practical go hand in hand. They're not separated, but listen to me. Our job is to preach Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. See from the beginning of Paul's ministry to the end and we find him doing one thing. All these secondary doctrines that Paul touches on, they're not the aim. And he knows it. Only the gospel. I've mentioned several times Acts 23 through 28. I read it this week and I just kept reading it, kept reading it. I was just amazed by God's sovereign hand with Paul. Just right there on him all the time. And this is what it says at the very end of Acts about Paul. Right at the very end of the book. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, this is Paul, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. He was just doing one thing, whether he's imprisoned 
or free, whether he is in whatever the city might be or on a boat that's about to be shipwrecked or taking the lashes or laying his place where, laying his head where he, he had no roof over his head. What was Paul doing? Preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. We must labor until the end, fight the good fight of faith, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ for the salvation of men until it is accomplished. Well, guess what? It's not going to be accomplished until Christ returns. So guess what our job is going to be until the day we die? Preach Jesus. Salvation found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. One name, one job, preach Jesus. So that, look at the rest of the verse, and that all the Gentiles might hear. We just want people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. The purpose of our ministry calling, the purpose of our ministry efforts is to preach and for people to hear. We trust the Lord will save. Despite our circumstances, despite the, despite the difficult, difficulties in ministry, we press on faithfully preaching so that they may hear. And then listen to what it says. Man, verse 17 is a long one. Here's the last part of 17. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth time and time and time again go read Paul's account rescued from the lion's mouth and then verse 18 says this the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom to him be the glory forever and ever amen see the Lord's rescue of us is twofold we are rescued from something and to something from the enemy the lion's mouth. The enemy is not those who have abandoned us or those who have wounded us or even opposed us, but rather the evil one himself who desires to deceive us through lies to give up hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our, our salvation is first a deliverance from eternal damnation, from the enemy that wants to ensnare us. I was rescued from the lion's mouth. But not just rescued from the enemy, we're rescued from all evil. But the beginning of verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. We're rescued from the deeds, the evil deeds of this world and those who oppose us in this life. Everyone who wars against the ministry that we have been called to will be dealt with by the Lord. He'll repay. The Lord will rescue us. Let's just concentrate on what the Lord's doing. Not worry about how he deals with them. He'll repay. Let's just focus on the reality that we know he will rescue us from all evil intentions and plots like we observe in the last few chapters of Acts. But he doesn't just rescue us from the enemy and from evil, but he rescues us to his heavenly kingdom and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. God's salvation is always twofold. Not just from, but to we ought to set our gaze ahead toward eternity and not be fixed on these present difficulties. We find this instruction throughout Paul's writings. Not the momentary light affliction, but the eternal glory, the eternal weight of glory. This future promise. We ought to set our gaze ahead. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Our present woundedness, the pain, the difficulty, we're to look ahead to the promise of eternity. Don't dwell on that. 
but to his heavenly kingdom. And then the last piece, he finishes with this phrase, and this is where we'll conclude with a little of application. He rescues us from the enemy and from evil to his heavenly kingdom and into humble adoration. To him be the glory. To God be the glory. In humility, our life's work, the ministry given us for the purpose of proclaiming the good news so that others hear, so that they too can bring God the glory that's due his name. Everything we strive for, everything that we do, every strained relationship, every ministry success, every ministry hardship endured, every joyful ministry experience is all for the glory of God who has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's for his glory. It's not about us. It's not about our pain. It's not about our suffering. It's about him and his glory. God's salvation will one day lead us into eternal worship of our glorious king. Listen to me. This is what I'll finish with before we hit a couple of pieces of application. If you can't read 2 Timothy 4.18 from your heart, I'm not sure what salvation you may have experienced. Because when God saves, when he delivers you from the enemy and the evil one into his heavenly kingdom, this is the only heart response that any of us could possibly have. If you've experienced that salvation, you can only say to him be the glory forever and ever, amen. If that feels foreign to you, you don't understand that, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not sure what salvation you have but it's not God's salvation because God's salvation produces that in people. Every single one, every believer who's ever walked the face of the earth understands that verse. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's the application and I'll be done. Three things. I'll be fast. Make every effort in ministry. Make every effort. Go, be with people, take along, bring Meet practical and spiritual needs. Make every effort. Give ministry your every effort. Two, be on the guard. Keep watch. Have an eye. Embrace good biblical teaching. I promise you your elders are striving to the best of their ability to preach God's word faithfully. Embrace it. Proclaim that good news to other people. Hope in God's eternal salvation. And listen to me, dear saints. Number three, glorify God. Use your life to glorify God. God has called us to hope in the Lord who rescues and defends us in the face of harmful opposition as we make every effort to faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all here for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the reality of his death and resurrection, the gospel that God has called us to, that our ministry is wrapped up in. Father, I pray that you would protect us from selfish agendas, but that you would make us the kind of ministry partners that encourage and bring life to one another. Father, help us in all these ways, in all these things, to glorify you above all else. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.